What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? And thank you very much for tuning into this edition of the of the Drop In. You know, I bring you some of the most amazing people, some of the uh, most incredible people on the planet. The gentleman sitting to my left is no slouch. I'll tell you what we met. I think over a decade ago. We've had the opportunity to sit down and talk on past podcasts, but I think now is the the perfect time to really dig deep into David Arnuby, to talk to him about where he's been, where he, what he has seen, and where he is going. I mean, we, I have the bestseller book sitting right here, Beyond Billions, and we're going to talk about it on this episode of The Drop-In, but I want to thank you guys so much for taking the time to spend with us, because I don't take that lightly. Your time is important to you, and you are going to spend an hour or so with us here on the drop-in. So with without much more, let's get right into it. I want to thank you so much, Dave, for taking the time to come down here. You're a busy man, and uh, and just thank you, man. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. It's great to be with you, girl. Uh, our... I mean, we can talk a little bit about how we met. That was pretty fun. Oh, and, and that's what I want to open with because I talk a lot about how you never know who you're going to meet or where. Right. And you and I ran into each other at Transition Skateboard Park down in uh, Taylor, Michigan, um, you were there with your sons, mm-hmm. and y- you didn't quite fit the mold of the rest of the crew there. You didn't have punky, crazy stuff going on. You were just at the at the half pipe, getting a feel for things. And and I walked up and said, "How's it going?" You know, introduced myself, gave you a couple tips, and and we've been friends almost ever since. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you never know. Uh, that is true. You never know where you're gonna meet. Uh, where? Uh, yeah, a good old Van Horn. I remember. Um, my son, we were watching Robin Big, yeah. and then that was uh, from like five months, and then he turned eight that, that summer, and he's like, he's like, Dad, I want a skateboard for my birthday. So I go on uh, Google and search, or on the map app, either one, you know, skate park, Dearborn, Michigan, and Transitions pops up. So we go there, literally for the whole first month, all we were doing was learning how to pump on the half pipe. Mm-hmm. That's it. And um, yeah, you were so gracious to us and kind to us. I think you met me before I started wearing my Ben Wallace Afro wig in my 70s powder blue uh, with pink cufflinks that Suit came a few months later that was later yeah, <laughs> yeah. once i got comfortable but yeah i mean uh, it was just a blast like first i buy him a board i bought him your board which we still have by the way oh cool the purple heart uh frankenstein head board and uh my son got green grip grip tape purple wheels and then your board was like black with uh, the green and purple so it's like his favorite colors are green at that, that at, at that age so um, we had a blast and, and um, you know, we've been skateboarding ever since. He didn't skate for a while from like, say, 14 to 20, but uh, last summer for his 21st birthday, he bought uh, another board. So we've been going downtown to the Tony Hawk Park uh, right by the Ambassador Bridge. Mm-hmm. And, and um, sometimes I'll drop in without my pads, but I'm still an old fogey. I used to put on my pads and you know, Tony Hawk style safety first. You know, I'm right there with you, David. Because I, I want to do the crazy stuff and go for a big air, and it's like those pads and helmet come in super handy if you if you bail and you and you hit something. Yep, I fractured my skull in 2001, mm-hmm. and I won't even drop in and take a practice run without at least my helmet on. But usually, it's helmet and knee pads, no matter what. Right, for sure. Well, let's get right into it for our audience. And once again, thank you guys uh, for tuning in. Make sure mm-hmm. grab a notebook, take some notes. We always cover some. Some different things that might improve your life and hopefully you get up from this hour and feel like you can take over the world because that's the goal of the show. Definitely. I want you to be the, the, the most 
optimal version of yourself you possibly can be. And that's why we do what we do. So with that, I want to ask you, Dave, because I don't know if we've ever covered it. And any time we ever talked, uh-huh. how were you growing up? How, what kind of kid were you in school and in high school and stuff like that? Uh, so I had a, um, I was a very high energy kid. I was a daredevil. Uh, my, I cracked my head open three times to get stitches. So I have three scars on my head. Um, I could climb trees. None of my friends could climb. Uh, I used to do contests with my friends, you know, who could jump their BMX bikes further off the garage. We would climb up with the ladder onto the garage and then ride our BMX bikes and <laughs> basically bunny hop and see who could land the furthest away. I, you know, I messed with the huevos a couple of times there, slipping off the seat and hitting the hand and hitting the, yeah. the top bar. Um, the things we do as kids, you know, I used to, we used to do BMX jumping contests in seventh grade. I jumped my bike like 40 feet and uh, cracked my rear wheel. It was a mag wheel. I had a Schwinn Predator. But we're indestructible at that age. I know. But it's just so hilarious talking about we wear pads and all the time and helmets. <laughs> and I'm like jumping 40 feet on a BMX bike, building ramps at the end of a church parking lot next to our apartment complex. Right, right. And um, just flying. And, and, you know, like God is so gracious. Like the kids can kill themselves so many ways. But it's like we're, we're way more, um, we're way more, we can do way more than we realize. That, that quote, you know, our greatest, greatest fear is actually that that we can do way more than we thought, not that we're not enough. And I'm, I'm not remembering the exact quote, but uh, I was definitely tested that. In seventh grade, I even built my own bungee cords and tied them to the top of a tree and jumped out of trees in the woods <laughs> yes. next to my house. <laughs> I love it. So now, did you grow up in me. Michigan? Uh, six states. I grew up, I moved 47 times before Holy I smokes. got out of high school. So uh, uh, now my first stepdad, I lived with him until I was seven. He actually uh, tried to kill both of my brothers. <laughs> His own kids. I was, I was, uh, it was not his, my mom had sex with my dad one time. They grew up in Rochester Hills, Michigan. For those of you outside of Michigan, to northern metro Detroit suburbs. And um, I grew up when I was six days old, she married my stepdad, my brother's dad. So he would try to cause my mom to miscarry both times she was pregnant. Oh my word. My first brother was born three months early, lived three months in the neonatal ICU. They told my mom, don't name this kid because he's going to die. And my mom told my brother, like, your name is Jeremy Marcus. You're going to live fight with all you have and three months later she took him home yeah love it so it's sort of weird having like this uh guy who had a lot of money and liked to spend time with us as kids um but he slept around with my mom bragged to her about the woman he was sleeping with gave her just enough money to pay the bills he was like actively abusive and adulterous and murderous and this was my male role model wow so a lot of my life growing up we moved every three months so we wouldn't know where we lived because when I was the summer I was eight, he took us to Alaska. We lived in Alaska for the summer. His his brother was a missionary to Eskimos. So we're like living with Eskimos out in the woods in Alaska. That was a blast for as a kid. But on that trip, I realized like he and my mom were not getting back together. I saw him flirting with other women, and I could sort of see it for the first time. And you're a little kid. You want to be just like your dad. They can do no wrong. Right. You're a little boy at least. And um, I could sort of see the reality of some of his selfishness for the first time. That summer I was eight. And um, so, yeah, after that, he told my mom, now I know where you live. So then we would move all the time. He would call the schools trying to find out our address. And my mom just had to stay a step ahead of him. So What a crazy, crazy upbringing. Just having to sort of run almost mm-hmm. like for most of your first two decades you were alive. Wendy Kravitz has a song, I'm Always on the Run. That was our life growing up. Wow. He finally like stopped trying to find out where we were by the time I was on like around eighth grade. Okay. My mom got remarried when I was in, uh, going into eighth grade. And so I think after that, I had another guy around, like he just you know, faded away. Right on. Mm-hmm. Right on.
right on. Crazy though. I mean, to move, you know, over 40 times, um, it, it makes it very difficult to create friendships and bonds because mm. you're always, you're always moving. Right. Yeah. It really shaped my personality or I would say, um, amplified our personalities because my brother is a more quiet person. So he was like, why bother making friends? We're going to move anyways. So he literally did not make right. any friends until his senior year of high school. Me, I'm like, let me make friends faster. So I'm <laughs> outgoing. So I learned to like make friends and just learn and show interest in people. And, and um, it's amazing whether you grew up in the same place your whole life or you move. It's like if you show, show genuine, true interest in people, like they feel that. And a lot of people just want to be seen. A lot of my daredevil stuff was just wanting to be seen. Right. Because I was always a new kid. And I'm like, how do I make myself impressionable to these new kids and be accepted by them? So I would just do wild and crazy stuff. Yeah, in my new book, uh, which comes out next month, mm -hmm. I talk a lot about that, about, um, you know, I, I was fortunate to turn a lot of my drive into positive things, but it was because I didn't feel comfortable with myself. I needed that crowd, the accolades from the crowd right. to, to keep me going because I couldn't do it for myself. And it took me over 40 years to really fall in love with who I am. But uh, the crowd and the accolades was what was driving me um, for most of my life. And, mm -hmm. um, and it's, it, I think it's a common, common thing that, um, especially as youngsters, we go through it most of the time that you grow out of it. I didn't quite grow out of it for a while. Yeah, I had a similar process for 30 years. I had an identity of I'm rejected. I'm not good enough because six months before my, I'm writing a memoir right now and I didn't realize till I wrote this book in a six month period, three people close to me died. Like my best friend, her mom cut her heart out. She thought she was demon possessed. She cut her heart out. I went to her house like four times a week and played Barbies with her as a black girl. You know, we were neighbors. We lived in an apartment complex together. And um, cut her heart out? Yeah, I went to her house to play one day and there's police tape on the door. And um, yeah, I was five going on six. And uh, I was just starting to learn how to read. So I couldn't quite make out what the police tape said. But then I looked through the window and knocked on the door. You know, I climbed through the police tape. <laughs> Knock on the door, no one answers. I look through the window, I'm seeing stuff on the wall, and now I realize it was my friend's blood. No way. But my mom didn't tell me until I was 16 that that's what happened to her. So, you know, it's by God's grace. I wasn't at her house when her mom came at her with the butcher knife. Right. You know, that I, I could have been killed too. Um, and then my stepdad told me he wouldn't adopt me. So that was very crushing to my identity. Like mm -hmm. My dad's not on my birth certificate, and then my stepdad tells me he's not going to adopt me. Right. So for, from 7 to 37, I carried around this rejection identity. And then um, it was a multi-year process of God healing my heart. And that's it. Learning to be enough. When we're willing to look inside and mm -hmm. figure out what we need to do to become better versions of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it's not always easy. It, it is not easy. It's very emotional. But when, when we uh, mature to that point where we can really dig deep, mm -hmm. man, what comes out the other side is, I, I could never imagine where I'm at today. And I'm sure uh, you could echo those sentiments a little yeah, bit. Yeah, definitely. For me, it was 12 step. I uh, went to celebrate recovery out in Brighton. It's actually the third biggest uh, Christ-centered 12 step program in the, in the country. Uh, my good friend, uh, Tim Wessel, ran that for many years and built it. And um, you know, my drug of choice was women, mm. you know, women and porn. And a lot of guys don't want to talk about it. That's why I talk about it very openly. It's almost better to say you have a heroin addiction to say you have a porn addiction. Right. There's like the social shame attached in a lot of circles. And so I think it's cool that there's a Christian group where you can talk openly about that. And it's not a shame thing. It's not a scarlet letter. And so I really learned how to have victory in that area of my life. And, you know, a lot of people, it's interesting, you know, uh, Krishna Soy, we both know, he like came out of his uh, addiction. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can be on top of the world and still be miserable inside. 
you know, Brian had Welch, similar story, the basis uh, for Corn, yeah. the guitarist, you know, he and Phil, both became Christians and they both came out of addiction to uh, heroin for those guys, heroin and alcohol. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there's something to be said for 12-step programs. Some of my best friends, myself included, mm -hmm. uh, those were life-changing for, for myself and for some of my closest friends. You are on that short list. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it just caused you to look a little deeper inside. But, uh, but what I'd, I'd like to sort of dovetail into is, um, you know, obviously your life has taken you up and down, up and down. Um, what, at what point uh, did you decide to write your first book? Because for me, I was speaking to middle schools and high schools. I decided I needed to write something that they could take away. So I, my mm -hmm. first book was geared towards 12 to 16-year-olds. It was right. to donate to libraries, to give to kids, to inspire them to have some goals, some dreams. Don't give up on that stuff. What inspired you to write your first book? It was a couple things. Uh, I went on my, uh, I went into full-time business at 30 years old. And uh, in 2006, my wife's from the Philippines. Mm -hmm. I lived there as a kid when I was 10. So the summer I turned eight, I was living in Alaska that summer. The summer <laughs> I turned 10, we're living in the Philippines. I can't wait to read the memoir. So man. I go from the north <laughs> to the equator, right? And uh, I hated being on welfare. My mom, my mom was in nursing school. And then she, uh, we went there as medical missionaries to the Philippines. It was a very politically unstable country. It was a miracle just that we were allowed to go. A single lady with two kids going to politically unstable country. Right. You know, where there's like violence and fighting between the government, military, and the population. And um, yeah, we were able to go. Uh, and that experience was just life changing for me. So I forgot I said it, but when we came back, uh, and just by the way, if you're like poor in America, in, in the last two years, a lot of people have dealt with a lot of stress, greater stress than they've ever dealt with in their life. Mm -hmm. Perspective is so helpful because like I hated being poor, and then I realized being poor in America is like loaded. Like, no matter what challenges you're going through, someone always has it worse than you. You know, I played with friends whose parents had sold them to the human trafficking rings because they were starving to death. Imagine you have five kids, and you and your wife decide, we're all going to starve if we don't get some food. Let's sell one of the kids so that the rest of us can survive for a year. This is the level of poverty that I lived in, with my neighbors had. And so I had the gift of perspective and gratitude, and most of my neighbors, making a dollar a day, they were very happy, joyful people happier than most Americans I had met. So I fell in love with Filipino culture. Fast forward to moving here to Detroit. Um, I met 400 Filipino nurses doing x-rays in nursing homes. Met my wife at one of those nursing homes. Oh, cool. And on my wedding day, my mom told me, when we came back, she said, like, when you were 10 years old, when we came back from the Philippines, you told me you'd marry a Filipino one day. <laughs> so I go into business. We go on a trade mission to the Philippines. I've been to the Philippines 10 times since I got married. And um, my one friend, Joel, who actually was an author, and had brought like 20 books with them and was giving them to, you know, billionaires and, and some of the most influential people we're meeting in the Philippines. We're all doing business between American companies and Filipino companies. Um, for those of you who don't know, that's what a, a trade mission is. And uh, the way people would react just to him giving him a, a gift, you've probably experienced this too, giving gifts to books to people. They cost you 3 to $10 to produce a book, but it can make a big impact on someone. Mm -hmm. So I was like, man, I love encouraging people. I love teaching people stuff. That's one thing I, that's one of your great, great, two of your great uh, qualities I want to acknowledge, Gerald. And so, um, and forgive me, like, Gerald or Gerald? I want to say, Gerald. It is with a hard G. Thank you. I'm like, man, I hope I, I that's, sometimes you say G. People yeah, call you G for short. Yeah, most people all yeah. call me G. Yeah, yeah. So, Gerald, like, I, that's one of the strengths you have. I just want to acknowledge you for that. So, I'm like, man, writing a book would be a perfect way to do that. You can encourage somebody and give them information that can improve their life. So, to me, 
Uh, and I've taken a spiritual gifts test and personality test, and they all show I'm a great teacher and encourager. So to me, it was just a natural thing of how can I encourage the most people at scale, thinking like a business person, right. write a book, and then learn how to market it, and you can have a, a great impact. So that's how my first book came along. It well, came up from that trip, and within four months, I wrote my book. Really? Yeah. Because yeah. I got mentoring from a lot of high-end marketing people, like Dan Kennedy. He's one of the best marketing consultants yeah. in the world. And he basically will teach you how to write a book, how to publish it, and then... Um, you know how to market it most importantly it's the best book in the world if you don't know how to market it it won't make the impact yes and and we live in such an amazing time where no matter what you want to accomplish in your life it's i my favorite quote on that is it's never a lack of resources it's always a lack of resourcefulness and i think that's a great quote because of the internet and technology and how how much you can learn if you're looking for the right things oh totally my friend Melvin grew up like dirt poor in South Africa. He's a Indian, East Indian ancestrally. His grandpa was like friends with Gandhi. A lot of people don't know this. Gandhi's from South Africa. A lot of Indians got like shipped down to South Africa back from the turn know. of the century, the early 1900s. So he like literally, some missionary came and talked to their, their village. And um, there's like, this is major, major uh, segregation in South Africa back then when he was a kid. And uh, he was like, if you ever need anything, you just ask Jesus and he'll provide it. Sometimes they would have no food and she would like be like, Jesus, please give us food. We need food. And like someone would show up and there'd be groceries on their doors. Mm -hmm. It was just like, so he would see airplanes flying he, and his name's Melvin Pillay. Shout out to Melvin. He'd be like, he'd see planes. He'd be like, one day I want to fly in you. And once I start flying, I'm never going to stop. And now he travels the world. He's got a Rolls Royce. I mean, it was his resourcefulness and his intention yes. that led to the doors opening for him to fulfill his, his dreams of his life. I love. Now that's, that's available to all of us. You know, first you believe it in your mind and then it starts to manifest in actions and those actions produce the desired results. Yep. And it, no matter who, um, I think when you start looking at the most successful people, the Jack Canfields of the world, the David R. Newbies of the world, they say the same thing. You know, they say, uh, you know, when you start to believe it, doors start opening up things start happening to really guide you but our ego gets in the way so much that you know we have an idea mm -hmm. of where we want to go and and the doors keep opening right there but we're like no but i want to go this way and that's the way mm -hmm. um, you should be going because you the uh unintended uh results that you can't envision uh, that that often gets in the way yeah definitely yeah that's been a big part of my journey of um a lot of doors opening recently for me is just really committing to next level humility because a lot of people ask how do you achieve really high results you need you need mentorship and guidance you know that's like this book beyond billions it's about solomon's wisdom he's the ultimate mentor you know he was in today's money worth four trillion dollars there's all this talk about billionaires shouldn't exist i mean he was worth the combined net worth of half of the world's billionaires as a single person just to give you an idea of the scale of that wealth the U.S. GDP is like six trillion a year right, for the whole right. nation, and he's yep. worth four trillion dollars. So um, he has a book, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, two books he wrote. That's all about how to have a successful life. So it's really the best recorded wisdom for success ever ever written down. And so modeling that mentorship and then seeking mentors. In the last two months, I've had like six people just give me very hard corrections right to my face. I think the reason why is I gladly receive and desire input, even input that's hard to receive you know, counsel that's hard to receive because I want to grow. And I think some people ask, how do I find great mentors? Be humble and be intentional. You can be intentional if I have a great marketing plan and seek out mentors. That's how I talk to my first three billionaires. Um, but then how you're being as a person determines 
how much input they'll give you. If your cup is full, there's no room for someone to pour into you. You need to be able to empty yourself of what you think is right or what is the truth in order to receive new revelation, new information. It just reminds me of a great Taoist, uh, I don't even know what lesson, where the master guy comes, he knows everything about everything, and the master's sitting there pouring tea, and he just won't stop. And the guy's just running his mouth, and he just keeps it going, and it starts running all over the table. Mm -hmm. I was like, what are you doing? And he, he basically said what you just said. Well, you know, this cup represents, you're already full. <laughs> and 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 this is what you know this you can't you. yeah and he and it, it's it's probably you know if you look it up it's a lot you know two sentences that say that mm -hmm. but it just reminds me of that that if you already believe you are full you're not going to accept any more and i'm a constant amateur at everything i do i don't care if it says professional skateboarder always willing to learn more and learn uh learn a better way uh from a to b whatever that is if it's working on my house if it's marketing if it, whatever you know you always have to be open to learning mm -hmm. i believe yeah definitely for me having such foolish male role models and then my mom told me later on when i was an adult that uh my grandfather choked my grandmother to death in front of her when she was eight years old <laughs> and my great-grandfather uh tried to kill my great-grandmother so this was three generations of murderers right, that right. came before me and um i'm like mom there was an incident that I that I won't. Uh, uh, I actually shared that, that incident at the Harvard Club of Boston for the first time ever publicly. Like I almost killed my son when he was nine months old. You know, not intentionally, not in anger, just sort of like he wouldn't stop crying. It's the only night my my birth father ever stopped at my house, and my son wouldn't stop crying. And my wife's working midnights at the hospital, and I'm like, I was like feeling embarrassed. Like after 20 minutes, like you know, when the kid's crying, what do you do? You feed them, you burp them. You know, if they're still crying, you check their diaper. They're still crying. You see if they have a temperature. I mean, what do you do after that? Mm -hmm. You know, so I go through all those things. He's still crying. And then, like, I notice I'm, like, holding against my chest, like, son, you know, stop crying. You're going to wake up grandpa. And I started getting frustrated and then angry. And I'm holding against my chest longer and longer. I'm like, this is how freaking, thank God I had a moment of clarity. I'm like, this is how people kill their kids. Mm -hmm. They get frustrated and then they end up smothering their kids. Right. And so, but it was that fear of embarrassment of, like, like looking like I don't know how to, do basic, simple stuff, take right. care of my kid, you know, being embarrassed to my dad. And so um, it was after that incident, I called my mom the next day and she told me about my grandfather, my grandfather. And then eventually I was just told her like, I'm sick of repeating foolish patterns. Like tell me all the crap grandpa and great grandpa did and my stepdad did. Like I'm an adult now, I'm married, I have a kid. Tell me all of it. Because yeah. I don't want to live these guys freaking life. Right. And actually science explains that epigenetics is a, passing on of patterns, lifestyle patterns through the genetic code. Yeah. And it um, and you can and you can rewire it. So it's not like you're oh this is my lot in life, I'm screwed. No. You can rewire it, but it takes intentionality. You'll keep repeating those patterns till you become aware of it and then you pick a new way and you reinforce that new way. And that's exactly what I was gonna comment. You know, epigenetics is incredible and we're not predetermined by our genetics. We can shift them. It takes, you know, thoughtful intention. Mm -hmm. And it, it might take a little bit of effort as well, but breaking the patterns is such a, a, a rad concept that so mm -hmm. many are starting to come come to grips with. Right. That, you know, yes, I get it, but I'm not predetermined to be that. I can break this pattern of whatever it is, if it's addiction, mm -hmm. if it's, you know, whatever, the, the violence, whatever. Right. Yeah, I think it's really important to realize uh, there's four levels of awareness. You know, there's unconscious incompetence. We're just making dumb decisions. You don't even realize it. Mm -hmm. And then as you seek wisdom or you, or you experience some painful results of, of uh, less than optimal decisions, you know, 
doing cocaine, looking at pornography for me, whatever it is, uh, it's, it's hurting your family, it's hurting others in your life, right? You got a gambling problem, you can't pay your bills, it hurts your, your kids and your, and your people you live with. Um, then the next level is conscious incompetence where you realize this isn't working. Like, I need to do something better. But then you can choose, as you seek out wisdom and what's a better way, you can choose conscious competence where you have to really make the effort, like you were just saying, girl, it's important for people to realize doing hard stuff is worth it because it creates new results. You know, life is hard either way. Being foolish and, and experiencing the pain of that is hard, right? Being foolish with money. Um, choosing new ways of being where it takes a lot of effort on your part, that's hard too. So the question becomes, which hard do you want? I want the hard that produced the good results. Right, right. So eventually you'll get to a stage of un unconscious competence where you do things in a great way without even thinking about it because it's become habitual for you. Yes. So wherever you're at in that stage of any part of your life that you're not happy with, just choose to humble yourself, empty yourself of I know what is right or the best way, seek some wisdom, and then practice that conscious competence. Mm -hmm. Speaking of wisdom, uh, you founded the Solomon Wisdom Society, mm -hmm. and you brought up King Solomon. Now you bring up wisdom. What is the Solomon Wisdom Society? So um, I study billionaires as well as King Solomon. I study modern billionaires. And uh, like a lot of people, you know, Elon Musk is one of my favorite billionaires. Uh, the way he rolled out Tesla was he made a hundred to $150,000 car and he only made 2,000 of them. And then he like marketed it to billionaires and Hollywood actors. So he's like, let me prove that an electric car can be cool and affordable, right? Relatively. Like it was as fast as $300,000 cars and it cost 150. So that's relatively affordable. Mm -hmm. um, once he did that, then he rolled out a sedan that was 60 to 100 grand more mass produced. That car still exists, the Model S. And then eventually he came out with the Model 3 which was the thirty to $50,000 entry-level car. And most people can afford a $30,000 car if you keep it for seven years. Right. And um, especially with the cost of gas savings. Before it jumped up recently, yeah. even at $2 a gallon gas, it's way cheaper. So I've modeled um, Elon's rollout of Tesla with the Solomon Wisdom Society. Uh, the Solomon Wisdom Society is basically a um, private members only by application organization. So we're starting with uh, memberships to 40 to 60 billionaires. We're capping the membership at 2% of the world's global billionaires. So there's about 3,000 billionaires in the world. So that means 60 would be the maximum that can be allowed in. Mm -hmm. um, and then eventually in the next couple of years, we're gonna roll out uh, light membership levels for people where it's say um, 100 million up to a billion. There's about 25,000 of those in the world. And then, then we'll do like 10 million to 100 million. And eventually we'll offer membership to anybody, even if they're just a entrepreneur and they still have a nine to five and they haven't figured out how to make income as an entrepreneur yet. Um, but I'm not gonna like, for people who might be like, oh man, that's not cool. Like, you know, I gotta wait, right, to be a member. Why are you trying to exclude people? I'm not trying to exclude people. I wanna give amazing customer service to people. So I wanna start with a small group of people and then eventually, you know, get our, all of our systems in place and really optimized and then be able to scale it. Mm -hmm. this, is what t uh, this is part of the reason why Elon started small with Tesla too, he realized uh, he called it a manufacturing hell. You start getting a lot of people ordering whatever you're offering, whether it's a product or a service, you need to be able to deliver it to them. Right, right. So it's important to dial in your business systems and then scale it to offer it to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And it's very, you know, it, uh, such a, a great lesson because um, the gentleman who started Tom's Footwear, uh, you know, he only made like 160 pairs or something the first time because mm -hmm. he had been... I think in Africa, and there was 160 kids there, and he wanted to give them shoes. So right. that's what he did. He's like, I'll sell 160, give 160 away, we'll be done. 
And uh, his friend advertised it at her store. It hit the New York Times, and they were being handmade in that in that little village. Right. And he ended up calling them like Nordstrom started calling, and it grew like crazy initially. And he was having trouble filling the orders. So mm-hmm. you know, make sure customer service is is paramount right now because there's a million companies that can do the same types of things. Mm-hmm. It boils down to how you treat your customers and how you are as a uh, employee or owner or whatever it is. How how you represent the brand will keep the people coming back. Yeah, totally. And one of the key for that is. Be willing to say no to people because you love them. Here's what I mean. I used to always say yes to everything because I had this rejection identity. I always wanted to make people happy and try to please them. So I was like a, a over pleaser mm-hmm. and I would often overcommit. And a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with that overcommitting. Um, and just anybody with an emotional wounding of rejection will often overcommit. So it's always good to sort of do like a three second rule or an, and a three day rule. Like Dave Ramsey says, before you buy something, put it in your shopping cart and wait three days and see if you still want it. Okay. You won't do a lot of impulse purchases that way. If someone says something mean to you and you're pissed, it's good to do with three breaths. Take three breaths and you'll actually get from fight or flight in the back of your brain, your adrenaline running. You're more likely to mouth off and say something really hurtful right. or have it turn into a fight and that'll escalate. If you take three breaths, you'll be back in your prefrontal lobe you can actually respond intentionally instead of react emotionally. So that, like the three it. breath rule is really good at the short level. In terms of commitment, well, I think it's good to wait three days before, like if someone invites you to do something, say, I really want to do that. That sounds cool. Let me just confirm three days from now that yes, I want to do this. And then if you, that just gives you time to think through it and not overcommit emotionally because you just want to say yes and please them. I like it. I like it. And it resonates with me. I had to learn, and I'm still learning because I am a people pleaser. I say yes to most things. Mm-hmm. I learned uh, I'll give it some thought is my answer a lot of times. And 90% of the people don't ask me for whatever it was, if they wanted artwork or wanted this or that or the other thing, mm-hmm. because I do. I say yes, and I overcommit, and then I get frustrated, and then I have to do it because I've already said I was going to do it. Um, so I like the, the three breaths for sure. And the three days, that's a, a great, make sure you're writing this down y'all, because mm-hmm. this is very important life information. That's going to save you a lot of gray hair, maybe some sleepless nights by not over committing to things, not saying yes all the time. And, and many of us, many of us, myself included are, are guilty of that, you know, being, being a people pleaser and trying to make everybody happy all the time, uh-huh. but saying no often is uh, more beneficial than actually saying yes, which is what you opened with. Mm-hmm. And instead of saying no right away, it's nice to say, um, I like this idea, you know, honor them, say thank you for that request or thank you for that question or thank you for that uh, invitation, whatever it is, and say, let me just um, get back to you and confirm within three days. Mm-hmm. So this way you're honoring them. It doesn't feel like rejection to them, but you're still being wise with your time and honoring of what are you committed to. The clearer you can get about what you're committed to and creating in life, it makes it, it gives you a decision-making matrix about what to say yes to and what to say no to. Right on. And if I say no, I always refer them to another resource to help them. I like that a lot too, you know, so they're not feeling rejected and not, you know, giving you the finger as they're walking away. They're saying, oh, you know, uh, you can't do it, but you did point me in the right direction so I can get whatever it is I need to get done, done. And uh, I, I really like that. I'm taking mental notes right now. Hopefully you guys are taking notebook notes because uh, that's, that's, again, I'll say it. That's the goal of this show. 
Mm-hmm. That is the goal of this show. We're getting nuggets of wisdom from one of the most amazing humans on the planet, in my humble opinion. And and you can't get this anywhere else but the drop-in. So thank you again, uh, David, for being here. Thank you guys for, for tuning in. And, um, you know, uh, uh, I... I as I was laying out our, our outline, you know, there's a million questions I want to ask, mm-hmm. but we can talk about them at dinner. Uh, uh, for the driven entrepreneur, uh, it's difficult to balance family and business. You know, we, we hear about it all the time that, mm-hmm. you know, all, all my dad did was work 100 hours a week. I never saw him, and, and he's building this empire. How, what advice do you have for balancing that family business dynamic? Yeah, thank you for that question, Gerald. Um, That was my experience growing up. My stepdad always had two full-time jobs and usually a part-time one. I mean, we saw him for three hours Sunday morning. And one of us, I remember for a year when I was uh, five, I really liked this one part-time job he had because he delivered papers on Saturday morning and we would go with him. And so like, yeah, pickup truck. My brother and I got to sit in the back. This is Texas in 1979. So we're just sitting in the back of the pickup truck throwing, he's like, that house. We throw the newspaper in the yard. At the end of it, we delivered papers to this apartment complex and we would strip down to our underwear and he would, we could cut through the fence and go sleep. I mean, there's swimming pool in our underwear. <laughs> then we'd come home and we would watch cartoons for an hour and eat, and eat Lucky Charms. So that was a great Saturday morning because it was work for him and we still got to spend time with him. We would like hang off the back of the pickup truck. This was my extreme thing to do, you know, going 50 miles an hour, hang off the back, like look at the cement below. It's crazy stuff. So yeah. Um, there was an episode of Beavis and Butthead where they did that. They're all hanging <laughs> out the back of a pickup truck. So uh, for the balance thing, it's important to know as a provider, whether you're a dad or a mom, that what's driving me. You know, for me, it's like, what do I want for my kids? Uh, I found that I was being a workaholic early, the first four years of being a business person. And then I realized if I didn't schedule family time, like I could work till 9 p.m. Mm-hmm. So what I started doing is I started scheduling Instead of beating myself up and judging myself, I'm like, I keep my appointments. I follow a calendar. So I started scheduling every day, seven to nine, family time. Dinner, talk with my wife, play with my kids. And the first month I did that, girl, I actually felt guilty. I was like, man, I should like love my family enough to just do it. But it's like, I'm wired to follow schedules. So I just did it. That works with the way I'm wired. I put that appointment there. I kept that appointment. If you find that it's hard to keep the appointment with your family, then this is a thing that worked for me. Think of your favorite billionaire or your favorite celebrity. You, know, you love Justin Bieber. You love whoever. You love How Elon did you Musk. know? How did you yeah. know I loved you? I'm, I'm a believer too, Gerald, wherever closet believers. <laughs> um, you know, like if you had an appointment to go have lunch tomorrow with Justin Bieber and he was your favorite celebrity, would you let something else get in the way of that or would you keep that appointment? Right. You're going to keep that appointment because it's important to you and you realize you value Justin Bieber's time. We should treat our families the same way. It's very easy to... Um, let other things encroach on our family time. So I say, I treat my time with God every morning and my time with my family, just like I have an appointment with Elon Musk. Give it the level of importance it needs where you will keep the appointment. And then when you're there, the other thing for entrepreneurs, oftentimes they're thinking about work while they're with their family. Like how do you turn your entrepreneurial brain off? So one a hack that's really good, I learned this um, from a guy, uh, Alex Sharfin, shout out to Alex Sharfin, is this thing called a waterfall. It's like at the top top of your entrepreneur brain turn off. He's like at the end of the day, plan your next day. There's a lot of other steps to it, but he's like at the end of the day, you plan your next day and you just write down three things you're thankful for. So it sort of gives your mind like completion that you've already planned the next day. And 
you like sort of sealed your work day with gratitude. Mm -hmm. And so that really helps you turn off your brain like when you stop working and go spend time with your family. But yeah, I've met guys that are worth hundreds of millions or billions of dollars and they've been divorced multiple times right. because they've never got coaching and received wisdom wise mentorship on how to apply business best practices to how they do things with their family. And I think we should all do that. A lot of people invest thousands or tens of thousands or millions of dollars in learning how to be great at business. It's like our family is, is I see your family as your most important division of your business. So you need to invest in it the same way you apply business wisdom to your business, to your work. You know, if you did a nine to five right now, you should still apply wisdom to how you do your work. So take, seek wisdom and apply that to your family. And the last thing is a lot of guys, um, I think I, I would guess between just from talking to 117 billionaires, I think people from all the way from starting out in business to multi-billionaires, about 35% of them have some kind of a, a rejection or a lack of affirmation thing in their heart. And oftentimes they're looking to get affirmation from the world by, by success. Perfect case in point. Donald Trump is the most uh, obvious example of that because if you look at the Forbes billionaire issues, the two years before he became president, he would sit there and invite them to his office every year and talk about, hey, look, you guys have me worth $5 billion. You're actually wrong. I'm worth seven point five. Let me show you how. Because he, he got his affirmation from how high he was on the Forbes list. Right, right. And that's just sort of a very um, public known, you can read the article in Forbes, example of that. But a lot of us, um, I remember, you know, like, I wanted to hit this certain income level because I'm like, man, I realized when I started doing recovery work and doing my inventory and making amends, like, man, I, I took all these risks in business because I wanted my dad and my stepdad's like affirmation that I never got. Mm -hmm. So wanting affirmation is oftentimes the thing that drives us and can cause us to not affirm our own family and like repeat the pattern of neglecting our family the way our dads or mothers may have neglected us. Right. So it's right. really important to like break that generational cycle and, and seek affirmation in healthier ways. And for me, I talked about it in the book, like I learned over a multi-year process doing recovery work, just like choose gratitude, choose, hey, uh, you know, I'm one of God's creations. We all are. I have value just for who I am. I don't need to achieve any financial X or, you know, do this amazing skateboard thing. My friend invited me to go skateboard with Christian Soy and Tony Hawk last summer. And I'm like, it freaked me out. And I'm like, man, I got to get better. But it's like, I'm never going to be a great skater. I just enjoy it. It's fun. Yes. So I'm like, I don't need to get good before I go skating with them and accept that invitation. And they would have been so stoked to have you there because, you know, they get to skate with the greatest on the planet. So to see, uh, in my opinion, to, to skate with somebody who just loves what they're doing, that vibration is often enough. To, to really make an impact. Yeah, the vibration of joy and just enjoy yeah. hanging out and being with the guys is fun. Yeah, and both of those guys. Or with the girls. Yeah. I meet girls like wearing the little uh, 70s kind of uh, roller skates. Sort of the roller girls, like down at the skate park downtown. They are crazy. I'm like, crazy. they're so cool. They are crazy. I can't even imagine having wheels attached to both of my, like now I, I'm going to bail a skate uh, like uh, on my board when I'm, doing a trick, I can throw it away, slide on right. my knees. They can't throw those things they're, away. They're heavy and they're on you, I know. Oh my word, that is so punk rock. And, and they, they fly them. up the quarter pipe and stuff. They are insane. They are insane and fun to watch in, in all ages. You know, I see them around, you know, at different parks. Everybody from 17 to, I'll bet you, in their 50s getting out there on their roller skates. And I think it's awesome. So, Gerald, I have this uh, fantasy. This is part of what drives me to take care of my health, of uh, still being able to play basketball when I'm 90. Yeah. So I like to still be able to see skating when I'm 90. For me, it was I wanted to like be able to take care of the core. Yep. Stay flexible. Yeah. For me, it was uh, I 
first first thing like that I ever thought of is I wanted to be able to do inverts in in big bowls at forty. And on my fortieth birthday, I went out. I did a hand plant in the or an invert in the Riley Bowl, ten and a half foot deep, big vert, gnarly. Did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I'm gonna be fifty this year. That's and, one fire. Is that one fire fifteen holes? Yes. Yes. And I'm gonna be fifty this year. And I've been skating a thirteen foot ramp, and I know I'm gonna be doing inverts at fifty. And I, you know, we got to set those little goals. That's awesome. Th- those kinds of goals. You know, if it's skating at ninety, if it's shooting baskets at ninety, if it's something at thirty, if it's at mm. fifty, if it's at sixteen, whatever. Those goals are so important, and and they really do something internally that uh, I don't think you could really explain unless you experience it. It's like the power of intention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The power of intention is incredible. I can't. They're they're sort of beginning to measure it a little bit. The magnetism of the brain and the heart and, and yeah, quantum how that, physics. It's very exciting. Yeah, what they're be able to measure now. Yeah, it's getting really cool because so many uh, people in the Western world need things quantified. Right. Faith is is not uh, a strong suit for for Western thinking mm-hmm. people, and so when they start quantifying that kind of a st- th- those kinds of things, I think it's going to change a little bit of the paradigm of how people think about that. Yeah, I'm I'm excited because like um, growing up, you know, I grew up a, a Christian background, but in high school I was an agnostic. You know, I was mad at the world. I was very rebellious. You know, mad about lack of affirmation and just you know horrible men in my life and the lack of a good male role model. And you know, stealing my mom's car and being crazy and dr- doing Fast and the Furious. You know, revving her car to the the speed limiter. She had a Nissan 240SX. I would drive at 125 miles an hour. That car would go 150, but they put a limiter at 125. Right. So thank God I couldn't go 150 down the freeway in Georgia. Um, I never had an accident, but in that anger and talking about energy, I studied every other world religion. So I'm like, it felt like the religion lottery. Like, how do you know you got the winning lottery ticket? One question I'd ask people moving a lot is, what do you believe? And then why do you believe it? And most people would say 98%. Well, that's what my family believes. Right. They never thought like, if there really is a God, if there really is eternity, if there's anything after us dying in our physical body, shouldn't, shouldn't you, you apply a little bit more intentionality into studying that and choosing mm-hmm. purposefully why you believe and looking at the evidence? So I studied all the major world religions. And um, one thing that's been neat, I even went to seminary. I became a Christian at 16, actually because I could not stop stealing my mom's car. It's become a <laughs> chemical addiction. That adrenaline rush was great. Stealing the cars, looking out for the cops, right? You know, you know, doing like illegal NASCAR moves. You know, yeah. cutting in between cars two, two inches away from them. It was fun. So I was just tired of like the addiction, girl. I felt like this sucks. Like, I, like I can't stop doing this. It became a compulsive behavior. So I was and just ready to kill myself. And spirituality helped get you out of that. Well, yeah. So I became a Christian very pessimistically. The day before I was going to kill myself, I had planned it out. I was going to walk into the woods a mile from my house and. I had studied anatomy. My mom's in nursing school, and uh, I had met her professor who was a neurosurgeon, and I had studied how to make incisions in the brain and do different brain surgeries. I was planning to be a neurosurgeon. So even though I hadn't been to x-ray school yet, I was going to, you know, not to be too graphic here, forgive me, trigger warning. I've talked about a lot of crazy stuff already. Um, maybe we should put a trigger warning in the beginning of the episode. Hey, we're talking about really heavy stuff here. Right. Um, but I was going to put the butcher knife between my sixth and seventh ribs and just bleed out in the woods. I thought that was the, that's what I deserved for what a horrible son I was and how disrespectful I had been to my mom and, you know, um, how I was just like such a, you know, worthless, wimpy guy that I couldn't even freaking stop stealing cars. 
My mom pressed charges on me, by the way. She realized I was almost 17, and I would have gone to prison for that as an adult. In Georgia, mm -hmm. you're an adult at 17. And GTA is no joke. <laughs> yeah, and the yeah, it might look fun in the game, but in real life, not cool. Yeah. So, and I'd already been arrested once by a state trooper stealing her car, uh, her her slower car, not the fast. <laughs> but I got arrested in her sports car, and here's the neat thing, girl. For me, talking about energy and the heart and and what what drives you as a person, right? I was very pessimistic when I, you know, prayed what they call the sinner's prayer in Christianity, right? But after a week, I realized I hadn't thought of stealing anything for a week. If I was a 16-year-old today, I'd be like looking at the latest iPhone and thinking, using my entrepreneurial creativity, what are all the different ways I can steal that iPhone? Right? For me, I applied it to cars back in you know, 1990. But when I became a Christian, I realized like, like Jesus became very real for me personally at that moment because it solved a practical problem of mine. Like this addiction I just couldn't get over. It was a chemical addiction. And so um, I think it's important, I studied a lot now, I have a lot more of the physical and emotional aspects of recovery and, and belief and how do you like create maximum achievement. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's um, you're right, in the West, we do not pay enough attention to clearing emotional and physical sort of residual crap in our body, energy stuff from trauma or just from, just from lack of, it doesn't have to be crazy trauma like I experienced, it could just be you know, lack of affirmation. If you're wired to, like, uh, there's a book, Five Love Languages, if your number one love language is words of affirmation, and your parents don't affirm you, and then they freaking uh, are, are actively abusive to you, that does a major work job on your heart. Right, in those first seven years, we're just sponges. That's you know, all we are. We're not even making decisions yet. Knowing how to heal that energy is important. Yeah. And some people will live their whole life and never figure that out. So to me, it's exciting, the whole... Um, you know, they're actually studying quantum physics. Like the heart has memory cells that are 10,000 times stronger. They've measured it than the memory cells of the brain. So this is why one of Solomon's teachings is protect above all else, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. Meaning be really, really wise what you give your affection to. I was being foolish. I was killing my marriage, giving my affection to freaking pornography and justifying it and saying, well, I'm not sleeping with all these women. So I'm not committing an affair on her, but I was hurting our energetic, emotional bond as husband and wife. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important that as men, we're real honest about, let's look at the energy of what we're creating and what we're doing. And if that's not creating the result we want, let's be intentional and you know, get healing for ourselves. Because you can't give your kids or your wife or your partner, if you're a woman, or your husband, your partner, what you don't have. Right? So you need to do that healing work first. And, and it's really exciting that um, we're learning more and more modalities in the West of how to do that. Well, and it, it is. It, it is. I study a guy named Dr. Uh, Joe Dispenza, mm -hmm. and he really is deep into that, you know, epigenetics and measuring the magnetism. And, mm -hmm. and I think he's at the forefront when it comes to actually science and, and the medical community really taking the power of thought seriously. What, mm -hmm. what are uh, the way we feel and how it affects our heart, how it affects healing, the internal system and the blockages from past traumas. Sometimes uh, there's this guy who wrote a book called, uh, he passed away, his name was Henry Wright, he wrote a book called Be in Health, A More Excellent Way. He had a PhD in, in medicine and a PhD in theology. He actually did all this deep study about each disease and which thing it was tied to energetically. Like unforgiveness would usually manifest as cancer and rejection would manifest as this. And like me, I've had a lot of tightness in my lower back. I've hurt my back six times where I couldn't walk. Mm -hmm. And... I realized that it was just a lot of um, the trauma I had for the first seven years of my life was stored in my lower lumbar spine and it showed up as inflammation and then it would flare up and I couldn't walk. 
So I only took five Vicodins in my whole life, but I can see how NFL guys got addicted to those things. They're crazy. I could like, I went from not being able to walk to feeling normal. Right. I'm like, holy crap, you were a pro athlete. Like that's, those things are so dangerous. And um, I just learned, my dad said six back surgeries. So I decided at 18, three things. I'm not going to get any back surgeries. I'm going to figure out how to take care of my back. I'm going to stay married to whoever I marry. Because my mom was married to f five times and my stepdad was married 10 times when I was growing up. So it's not like find the right spouse, it's be the right spouse. I figured that out at 17. Thank God I had enough clarity to see that. And then the third thing was, I'm going to give my kids a stability I never had. Like they're going to grow up with the same friends, the same house. We'll travel a lot and have fun, but they're not going to be on the move and on the run like I was. And thank God I've been able to fulfill all of those commitments. But the one about, um, you know, just upgrading who I'm being as a man, I, I didn't realize how much um, release work I had to do release that stuff from my body and it is really exciting to realize like we should do with all three we should you know therapy is great do it emotional 12 stuff is great doing an inventory and amends just like forgiving everything is amazing because because um you know uh, i don't want to die of some disease because of some emotional thing i'm carrying because you're and i realize there's a total emotional thing connected to my lower back pain oh i i am so in agreement with everything you just said you know holding on to resentments will kill you uh, for me, when I get super emotional, I've had hip issues. I've been public about it, you know, stem cells. Mm -hmm. When I get really emotional or I have pent-up anger or something, my hips are killing me. And the next day I get up and I can't walk. And I'm like, I need to deal with something emotionally right now. Sounds like I, an alarm. We should pay attention. Yes. An totally. alarm going up. Pay attention. Took me a while to understand that, but now I do. I know mm -hmm. when my hips are feeling even worse than normal, there's something that I need to deal with or need to handle that's causing some... Uh, what so, modalities do you use to release it? Because I keep always adding stuff to my modalities, so I'm curious what do you yeah, use to release well, it? Well, for me, I always go, because I'm a yoga guy and I meditate, you know, a few times a day, and I ask uh, the divine to, you know, give me the words, almost your, the opening prayer you started mm -hmm. the show with. That's my opening morning prayer every single day. You know, show me the way, give me the words, um, give me that divine guidance that awesome. I really need. And uh, usually I get guided into the right place. As soon as I acknowledge that that's what's doing it, and I have that acknowledgement, and I ask for help. And and for me, it you start works. to feel it. You start to feel it in your body. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, physically. Yeah. If I get pissed off, like I'll just like uh, I used to in my twenties, like just jump to the drop to the floor and do push-ups. Yeah. I was tired. That's one way to get that adrenaline out of your system. Another thing is like I just like choose gratitude and thank God for the awareness. And then I'm like, I send away negative energy. I send away any negative emotion. I choose gratitude. I choose thankfulness. I choose joy. I choose peace. And what is, uh, you, you'll feel it physically within a couple of minutes. And then the it, deep breathing. If you're still feeling that adrenaline in your system, the deep breathing can get rid of it. You can do that or something physical to get it out of your system. Well, in gratitude, I'll tell you what, multiple times throughout the day, I'll look up and, and just say thank you for uh, the most. I mean, at night, it's about the pillow and the sheets and the little mm -hmm. things. You know, in the morning, it's laying out the plan for the day. But gratitude that I have another opportunity for this day. Mm -hmm. uh, gratitude is one of the most, I think, underrated and amazing feelings. I don't even know. I don't even know if I want to call it an emotion because it's a feeling of gratitude, of thankfulness. Mm -hmm. And and it immediately puts a smile on your face. At least it does for me. As soon as I start thinking of those things. It, it, it's a, a complete 180. Mm -hmm. um, if I'm in a good mood, it takes me to a better mood. If I'm not having the best day in the world, it's it, it, it helps me get out of that little funk, whatever it might right. be. Gratitude is amazing. And another thing cool is like love is a choice and so is gratitude. You can choose peace. You can choose love. You can choose joy in any situation. Oftentimes a circumstance 
will cause us to feel a certain emotion. But in that moment, we realize, okay, an outside force made me feel a certain way. But at that moment, you can choose to release it and to be joyful, to be thankful, to be at peace. That's the power is to realize like there's a, we can choose it even when we don't feel it. And that literally will change our physical feelings when we choose to like go to that frequency, right? You know, joy and anger and joy and frustration, joy and complaining really can't coexist. Right, right. And I think it's... Thanking uh, God for all these blessings, the complaints will go away because it's like your cup was full of complaints. You fill your cup with joy, the complaints are gone. Yeah, and I think it was Francis of Assisi uh, said, I can choose peace over this. And I love that quote as well because mm. when you get all... Uh, if it's bummed out, if it's pissed off, whatever it is, you know, if you can say, I can choose peace over this, you're making that choice. It is a decision mm -hmm. of how you want to handle the circumstances in your life. And um, we can make a shift like that, like that, by, by thinking a different thought. And, um, you know, you, you brought up the three breaths and the different things. In recovery, one of the greatest tools I was ever, and it was a therapist that told me, mm -hmm. she said, make a list of 10 things you love. And for me, it's like hot shower, chicken noodle soup, <laughs> going for a walk. And she said, when you feel like, for me, again, it was vodka was my thing. And she said, when you feel like you have to have a drink, start at the top of that list. Because that urge only lasts about six minutes or so. And I never even got to number five on the list. I, I jump in a hot shower. And by the time I got out of the shower, if I even still had a little inkling, hot bowl of soup. And it never much got past that. So those three breaths, I bet you there's science, quantifiable science behind that. Mm -hmm. You know, giving yourself a break for a minute to step away, whatever it is, if it's breathing, if it's your favorite things, if it's counting to 10, whatever right. it is, giving yourself a moment to step away. And uh, it, it's really a game changer. Yeah, it is. For sure. Um, I wanted to ask you about something I read because I really didn't understand um, – what is, um, you know, financial success failure? Because, you know, you're a legacy coach. You, mm -hmm. you teach legacy, you know, long-term wealth and, and mm -hmm. generational wealth. Mm -hmm. What is, I didn't, I, I didn't grasp the concept of financial success failure. What is that? So a lot of things in life are counterintuitive. So a lot of times I used to think, well, if I can make a million dollars a year, you know, then I'll be successful right? Then my wife will be happy. Uh, my sons will be happy. I can provide this amazing lifestyle, right? And then, um, you know, then later, like I remember the first time I got a $20,000 profit check on a real estate deal. And I grew up on welfare, right? So my stepdad, even when he had $1,000 in his pocket, he would fly prostitutes to the Bahamas. He gave my mom 400 bucks a month to pay the bills. So like we would always just get by. So I had a very big poverty consciousness, but what's sort of crazy was, um, I got a $25,000, $25,000, $50,000 check from real estate deals. The first time I got one of those checks, Carol, my first thought was, I want to go to the strip club. <laughs> I was like, what the hell? Why was it my first thought? Let's go Let's go to Kalahari or Cedar Point for the weekend as a family. Right, right, right. Right? It was that I became more aware, holy crap, this this uh, is still in, in my systems in some way. Right? These patterns of my staff that I haven't released all of these yet. And so um, financial success failure is... It's a weird paradoxical thing that the more financial success people create, oftentimes the more likely their family is to fail. Here's why. We talked about earlier about the overworking and neglecting and not affirming and empowering and intentionally passing on your skills to your kids and your wife, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of times people like their plate gets over full and they just end up not going to the kids' soccer games. 
not you know breaking uh, time engagements with the family. A lot of times the family suffers. So that's the emotional component. The other component is the lack of passing on skills. Um, the third component is outside pressure. Imagine you're one of Elon Musk's kids or, or you're Tony Hawk's kids. They're like, oh man, you want to be a skater? Like living up to your parents' right. example. A lot of uh, wealthy people's kids are like, why even freaking try? I can't be as cool as my mom. Imagine Sarah Blakely's your mom, mm -hmm. right, for a female. You know, my mom's a billionaire, and she did all this innovative stuff with Spanx. You know, I don't, I'm not wired for a business. How am I going to compete with mom or, or make a name for myself? How can I live up to and make mom happy or make her proud? And so um, it's really important to realize your kids, the more successful you become, are more likely to fail because why try to be like mom or dad? I'm, I'm not a, I don't think I can be successful as them. Um, a lot of those kids just console themselves with addiction. I was going to say they go completely the other way. A friend way. of mine, uh, Lee Hausner, she wrote, she wrote a book and she talks about this concept called, uh, she used to like be the head psychologist for the Beverly Hills, California school system. She calls it the golden ghetto because a lot of really poor kids in the ghetto, they have very high uh, promiscuousness, drug, ad uh, drug addiction, mm -hmm. just bad decisions. The same, there's the same number of kids who have those problems in very wealthy neighborhoods because of those three factors I just brought up. So for the parents to realize, like, it's important that we don't deceive ourselves and say, when I become more successful and give my kids the best of everything, that is, then they will be successful. No, they won't. You need to give them your time and your affirmation. As parents, that's something that only we can do. We are the biggest influence in our kids' lives. So it's vital that we affirm our kids and speak their love language to them very intentionally. If we don't, our kids are going to fail and no level of financial success will, will solve that. This is the biggest thing missing with estate planning and succession planning. It's all about don't lose all your money to taxes and, and, um, and preserve the business and pass on the business. But nowhere near enough time is put into affirming, creating a culture of affirmation for your kids and passing on your skills. If you pass on your skills and you don't affirm them, they're still likely going to blow it. I think I was pretty fortunate because my mom gave me my empathy and my dad gave me my athleticism and drive. Mm -hmm. So I got a pretty cool combination, you know, even uh -huh. though it wasn't the greatest, you know, we, we, I love growing up, you know, and I grew up similar, I mean, sort of similar government subsidized housing, um, you know, not making a million bucks, mm -hmm. you know, and paper right. out at 11. I worked from that time on and, and just, I was fortunate to have some incredible male influences in my life at certain times mm -hmm. if it was a boss at a job if it was you know depending on what it was and um hopefully for our viewers we're giving you some positive uh influence on your life mm -hmm. and maybe it's lacking for you every day but tune into the drop-in and you can get some little nuggets sometimes often big nuggets of information that can be life-changing for you and for me. I mean, I like I said, I'm making mental notes because I learn something every show. And uh, we're blessed to have you in studio today, David, because uh, I mean, already I'm like, oh, I got to be writing all this stuff down because I I'm always learning. have a, a yellow pad on me and I'm always taking notes on every console. Yeah, why not? It reinforces it in your brain. Yeah. You know, when you write it, it crystallizes it and it does something special. That's why mm -hmm. I encourage people to write down their goals or write down even when they're angry, sit and write it down because somehow that gets out of you. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, speaking of stuff like that, uh, do you have any any tips that you can give the up and comer comer who is listening right now? Mm. They're watching this show 
And, and always my goal is somebody out there in the universe is watching and they're going, man, I want to be like David Newby. Mm. You know, do you have any tips for that up and comer in high school right now who's saying, I want to be, uh, I want to be more like that guy. Uh, just a couple. I know uh, they got to read the book. Mm. They got to read the best selling book or pick up the first book or whatever. Any, any quick tips you can give anybody? Even though yeah, you've I given say, a boatload already. I would already. say there's a, I would say there's like a few main things. One is, um, Always be curious, and like we talked about, daily empty yourself so that you can receive more wisdom. Um, I would say seek out mentors. I even if you like grew up like me and you moved a lot, and it took me a long time to really develop some quality relationships with older men, um, where I wasn't looking for affirmation for them, where I was at peace with who I am, as just you know because of who I am, uh, right, right. For me, it was, you know, reading the Bible and, and just being content that, hey, God loves me and my mom and my brother love me and that's enough. I don't need any particular man like my birth father or my stepfather's affirmation. Um, so like seeking mentorship, it's important to uh, empty yourself, seek wisdom. And uh, I would say lastly, be patient with the process. In my 20s, I did a bunch of stuff in business and it was like uh, impatience. You know, there's a phrase in, that Solomon teaches in Proverbs, don't be hasty and miss the way, you know, be diligent and follow through on things. Sometimes you can just hastily jump into something and go do it without getting the information that you need to be successful. So some people are always jumping from opportunity to opportunity. Like some people are, and I love MLM, by the way. It's a great way to like learn mentorship because they usually tell you, they encourage you and have you read personal development books. Right. And then they sharpen each other and you get mentorship from your upline if you have a good upline. But some people, they'll jump from an MLM then they're doing crypto mining, you know, then they're doing uh, real estate investing, then they're doing this other thing. It's almost like whatever is hot, they go do that. Don't opportunity jump, be patient. And, um, and just and my one friend, Marshall Silver, he's the world's best hypnotist. He says, sample the buffet, meaning um, test different things out and see what's a fit for you. Cause some businesses are a way better fit or some industries or some careers are way better fits for some people than others. You know, the, based on your personality. So I think it's good also to take a couple personality tests. And a lot of them are free online. You know, there's a um, one test you can get for free on Tony Robbins' website. I forget the name of it because I've taken like 10 of them and I forget the name sometimes. But you can take one of the personality tests about how you do things in the workplace uh, for free on Tony Robbins' website. And then also, um, if you're a spiritual person, like there are free spiritual gifts tests you can take online. You can also take that five love languages test quiz mm -hmm. online. It'll tell you what your top love languages are. I say, have every one of your kids and your spouse, if you're married, your girlfriend, even if you're dating your boyfriend, like, and then intentionally speak their love language to them. Mm -hmm. That makes, it's, it's a huge game changer. And all these, a lot of these quizzes are free online. So like, figure out, take the time to figure out how you're wired and how the people close to you are wired. And, and then it's intentionally, you know, look to do things that are best suited to you. And by the way, I'm 47. You know, I'll be 48 this summer. And I would say it was, uh, 40 to 43 when I got really clear, like what I'm gonna do with the rest of my life. I'm gonna do legacy coaching, talk about affirmation, being the best male. I'm a, I'm a guy, so I focus on coaching men, right? No, no offense to the ladies. Um, but you know, all these, these teachings of like intentionally, I talked about in the book, decide who you're gonna be as a man and release definitions of manhood you had from your male role models that are not uh, optimal. And then like replace those beliefs those suboptimal beliefs with really better intentional beliefs. Um, I like redefine manhood for myself and then I've transformed my relationship with my sons and my wife doing that. 
So um, I would say be intentional and be patient with the process. Because I mean, literally from 22 to 42 for 20 years, I was doing different stuff. I did real estate full time for 10 years, mm -hmm. real estate investing. Um, but uh, I had an inkling of actually when I was on a, my trade mission in the Philippines, the same one that I decided to write my first book with my friend, I had the idea to create the Solomon Wisdom Society. But it took 10 years of me healing my heart before I was ready to actually go right. do that myself and, and realize that I have everything I need to influence 60 of the world's billionaires. Yeah. So be patient with the process, right? I got impatient. I thought about quitting and not even you know, pursuing that multiple times. But I had some friends who had built you know, $150 million companies say, like, look, there is something here. I've talked to a lot of billionaires too, and like, they need this. So because I had good mentors and advisors, they helped me push through the times where I had, you know, big doubts. Right, right. And and we all do. No, mm -hmm. You know, there are days in my life where I'm like, why do I do this? I should just quit doing it all and go get a 40-hour week job. And, mm -hmm. and, and I'm like, no, I can't do that. I've been, do I've been always, uh, uh, I stay busy uh, all day, every day. And, and if it's working on my health, if it's working on my sanity, or if it's working on, something else I have going, you know, I'm a busy person, but I always have those doubts. Not always. They get further and further apart. I think the further along you get um, focused on, on what your goals are and what your passion is, mm -hmm. those doubts get further and further um, in the back, in the rear view mirror and, right. and surrounding yourself with like-minded individuals is I think a huge thing, mentors, different things like that. Mm -hmm. But can you believe it? We've already uh, filled up a whole hour already so we're gonna have to do this again it felt like point. 10 minutes yeah That's totally so we're can gonna i share one last thing girl heck yeah you can you were talking about daily you know starting the day and just thanking god for another day uh a friend of mine passed away in january uh he turned 48 in december and a month later he died he was in really great shape and uh i just want to give a shout out to him his name's Aris de la cruz so the person i was closest to in my adult life besides my wife when he passed it just like it hit me and i was like in a tailspin for two weeks you know and i was just like you know barely motivated to do anything i just really had to do deep emotional processing but i realized i never i never lived in any one city more than six years growing up and um i had a lot of six-year friendships it's like repeating the pattern mm -hmm. of be friends with six years move on it's like repeating right. childhood patterns and i was friends with him from like 08 and i was like holy crap like i've known this guy longer and been close to him longer than anyone besides my wife so i really gave myself time to emotionally process his death but the other thing is, um, you know, he, his dad, like, worked with Fernand Marcos. And Iris would, he, was, he was not close with his dad either. So we really encouraged each other to be the best husbands possible. When we were having challenges in our marriage, we would encourage each other and, um, and, and, get, and ask each other questions. How do you deal with this situation? And just sometimes just having that little sounding board helps you push through challenging mm -hmm. seasons. When you're thinking about giving up, you know, on relationships, just like we think about giving up on business. And, um, yeah, like his passing... Like, I, I just want to acknowledge him that we should give ourselves time to process losses. And then number two, like, you know, life isn't a dress rehearsal. Like, I, when I was in, in the Philippines in 2012, I met the lar owners of what was the largest producing gold mine in all of Asia. This was a potential 10 to $20 billion asset. So my friend Eris passed. I'm like, screw it. I'm not going to play small and think that, you know, I need to do something else before I could pursue a potential $20 billion asset. I don't need to be a billionaire to prove anything to anybody. I mean, um, 
I love people and just serve people, whether it's a homeless person in my wife's hometown in the Philippines, or whether it's, you know, the richest guy in the world. Like, they're a person, I'm going to show them love, I'm going to look to uh, be a good friend to them, because we all need friends. Right. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge him and say, like, this is something that's happened for me in the last couple of months, where the resources are coming together. I mean, I may be buying a potential $20 billion asset in the next six months. And uh, I have a way to monetize it and a way to, uh, like, use it to actually produce a lot of wealth for the world. So, anyways, I just wanted to share that. Uh, I think it's good to have a BHAG and to acknowledge sometimes you know about something and you think you're not good enough for it. You know, like, like uh, Wayne's World, we're not worthy, we're yeah. not worthy. Like, we have those thoughts sometimes. Oh, I have I think it's lot. important to realize, like, I don't want to share to the audience, like, you are worthy of whatever your dream is. Um, and, and, and don't wait till you're worth a certain amount of money or you get a thumbs up from some certain person before you pursue it because we have one life to live. Yes, we do. And I think uh, Dr. Wayne Dyer says, you know, if we're always striving and never arriving, it doesn't, it's not very much fun. But with that, I want to say thank you, guys. Thank you so much. And I had to chuckle when you said this isn't a dress rehearsal because every single show, I say that. Oh. We get one shot at life. This isn't a dress rehearsal. It's our job to make the most of it. And so I had to chuckle. Every show, that gets said. I had to. I, uh, I have to just say I'm honored to be on your wavelength. And uh, that's why I wear my purple suit today. I love this it. This is St. Patrick's Month, so I got my purple shamrock yeah. tie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got the little shamrocks. And, um, yeah, you're, you've been an inspiration for me, girl. So uh, I thank you for who you are and uh, the way that you're – the way that you're using your talents to better the world. Well, thank you. And I, the feeling is mutual. And you know that. I tell you that when we talk every time. Uh, I want to thank you guys for spending an hour, a little over an hour with us here on the drop-in. And uh, last thing, how can they get your book? What's the easiest way for the folks in uh, all over the world to check you out? What? How can they keep up? Yeah, um, my name's David Roy Newby. It means Beloved King Newby. sort of hilarious. So sometimes I'll... Ooh. In business meetings, we'd be like, hey, I'm Beloved King Newby, <laughs> also known as David, but DavidRoyNewby.com. It's R-O-Y-N-A-W-B-Y. And then um, this latest book, Beyond Billions, there's BeyondBillions.com. There's a link to the Audible or the Kindle or the hardcover. Cool. Did you, uh, did you do the audio on the book? I did the audio. You did? Yes. I thought about hiring like a British dude, like Robert Kiyosaki had that book, Cashflow Quadrant. <laughs> yeah. I had the audio of that in my 20s and I listened to it like 50 times. You know, some British dude, and I'm like, Robert Kiyosaki is a Japanese dude from Hawaii. Right. But it's a British dude. It was always <laughs> so funny to me. So, like, I thought about doing a British guy, but I'm like, no, let me do this because this is my heart. This yep. is, you know, something God gave me to share. So, even though I don't have the best speaking voice, let me go ahead. And, awesome. And awesome. It, yeah. I'm super stoked to hear that because I was just looking into my new book, making an audio book. Mm. And I'm like, should I do it myself or should I hire somebody to do it? And I think I'm going to do it myself. I'm like, it's my book. I love this book. I think I'm going to uh, do the, the audio myself. So People I'm... hear the conviction and the passion, like the, that it's really from you. That's yes. not a dirty secret in the publishing world. Most celebrities hire a ghostwriter to write their book. Yeah. So when you actually write, I've written every word of my book. I do pay editors and proofreaders right. to get it nice and concise because I can talk, as you can see. Um, but yeah, I think it'll, it'll be amazing to have a bee in your voice. Yeah, that'll be a good time. But with that, I want to thank you guys. Hopefully you took notes. 
reach out to David. Uh, go to davidroynewby.com. Check out the book. Uh, if you need, if you have any questions, you can funnel them through me. I can try to find the answers uh, for you. I know you're on Facebook as well. Yeah, that's my uh, name on all those social media too. Okay, Twitter, cool. Instagram. I'm an old fogey. I don't think I'm ever gonna get Snapchat or that other stuff. But yeah. I have Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Me too. So again, I want to thank you guys so much for being here. And remember. This isn't a dress rehearsal. We get one shot at life, and it is our job to make the most of it. So uh, make the most of the days you have because you never, you never guaranteed tomorrow. So make the most of today. Make the most of this minute. And just thank you once again for uh, sitting through this episode. I know you got a lot out of it. Thank you again, Dave. Um, I appreciate it. And, um, and with that, this is David Roy Newby. I am Gerald Valley, and this is The Drop-In. Thank <laughs> you.